This last episode of 2021 will include an older interview with author Betty Frizzell about her sister Vicky's story, but in a new light. The intro to this show may become emotional, even overly so for some who have experienced abuse in their life. Please be aware. With that, here is the Heartland Pod, episode 110, No Way Out. Every month, 57 women are killed by an intimate partner with a gun. It's nearly two women every day killed by a gun left in the hands of their abuser in America. Think about that the next time you're having one of those days. One of those days where every single thing seems to go your way. You can do no wrong. The world appears, at least from your perspective, to be revolving around you and no one seems to mind or even really notice. Think about that on that same day. In two separate homes somewhere in America, a woman, maybe a mother, a sister, a friend, all of the above, she's going to be shot and killed by her abuser. When that happens, it won't be the first time she's been abused. It might not even be the first time she's been shot at. But on that day, for those two, it will have ended. The abuse will be over. If you're not familiar with the impacts of the trauma of abuse like this, the kind of abuse that leads women to see death as escape, not as punishment, the kind of abuse that they don't even really put in movies because you couldn't possibly actually watch it. Sometimes she's able to leave. Usually it takes more than one try. Often it takes several. Imagine being that woman. Imagine being in that position. Imagine finally getting out and with just enough a child who needs food in the back seat a child who needs clothes shoes a place to sleep maybe more than one by the way if you find the support that helps you through the fear maybe just maybe you'll file for an order of protection a judge will issue a preliminary ruling that this abuser this partner must stay away or be subject to criminal prosecution. No voicemails begging forgiveness and mercy, followed by texts explaining how if you don't call back, you shouldn't bother to ever come back to the house anyway, or how you're never going to see your kids again if you don't just listen. No slow vehicles driving by at odd hours. No looking around the grocery store hoping you're not being followed. The court can give you some relief, thankfully. Finally. And don't worry about that cell phone. The one that that partner won't stop texting and calling. Thanks to the changes in 2016 to Missouri's abuse statutes, at least in Missouri, you can make sure that the court has the authority to take care of the cell phone bills and order who pays what. They can deal with that issue. Unfortunately, while you get to keep your phone number and your contacts, your partner, the one that keeps beating you, your abuser, the one you think might just kill you, well, now thanks to the Second Amendment Preservation Act, that violent abuser gets to keep their guns. The one they pointed at your head, the one they accidentally fired into the wall, the one they swore wasn't loaded that time it went off. There's a federal law allowing for a judge to order firearms to be removed from and to have no possession for a period of time, that abuser. But in Missouri, that law has been nullified by SAPA, a culture war legislative item that is pro-domestic violence, anti-police, and in no way actually improves anyone's freedom. 
when members from both parties tried in the Missouri legislature to amend the bill to close this loophole, a term that is radically incorrect for this scenario, as it was a ground-up new construction job. This isn't a loophole. It's a double sliding door, and it's wide open. All of this is why when you hear a story about a woman, no matter the age, killing her husband, her partner, you should first wonder if there was abuse because it's a pretty good bet. Something like that may have happened down in southeast Missouri. A few months back, I sat with Betty Frizzell to discuss her book, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, the true crime story of her sister, Vicki, an abuse victim, a drug addict, and now convicted murderer of her husband, a death caused by a gun in the home. Here is that interview as it has previously been published. Before that part of it starts, I do want to very quickly say if you or somebody you know is dealing with domestic violence, or if you want to know how to deal with it, if you're not sure, check out thehotline.org. It's in the show notes, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's worth a call, it's worth a text, or even if you just want to get involved, it's a place to start. Maybe they can help you find your local shelter. There's lots of them out there, sometimes they're hard to find. Check it out, thehotline.org. And now here's the interview. So let's talk about uh, today's guest. I do want to preface this with a couple of things. Number one is uh, I pronounced her name wrong several times, and I'm very sorry about that to Betty uh, and to everybody listening. Uh, She did finally correct me. She was extremely polite about it, uh, and and it was not until the very end that she corrected me. So Betty Frizzell uh, is with me for this chat. I called her Betty Frizzle several times. I think I was just trying to make it Frizzle. I was trying to make it so, so that I could say that I knew him as Frizzle, but you know, I just wasn't right, and I have to admit that. So Betty Frizzell, she is an author. Uh, She has written a very powerful book called If You Can't Quit Crying, uh, You Can't Come Here No More. And it's a it's a true story. Um, it's about her sister, who her name is Vicky. And basically, look back in 2013, Betty gets a call and Vicky's in jail. There's a 911 call that alleges Vicky made a confession to killing her husband. Vicky's son is in the home with her. And the book details Betty's journey, uh, having to deal with small town politics, law enforcement, the mental health issues, the opioid epidemic, all of these things. And on top of that, Betty is a former police chief, sheriff's deputy, so she knows her way around an investigation. So we've got some uh, some justice system inequity, some law enforcement inequity going on. We've got some mental health issues going on. There's just it's it's sort of the the perfect cocktail of things. And it's it's just a very good uh, insight into some of these areas. This all takes place down in the boot heel uh, of Missouri Stoddard County, down around Poplar Bluff, uh, in, a, in a tiny little town called Puxico is, is sort of the origin point of the story. We're talking about some of the poorest, most rural, most underserved counties, not just in Missouri, but in, in America. It, it's a really rough place in a lot of ways, uh, with a lot of beautiful areas, but folks who simply are just not getting the attention uh, that, they, that they ought to be getting. It's, it's very moving, and parts of it are graphic, parts of it are hard to listen to, and so I do just want to let people know that this, this episode may not be super easy to listen to 
at times. And if you're a person who maybe puts on a podcast in the car with kids, this this might not be the one for certain reasons. There's domestic violence. There's obviously spousal abuse. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. Uh, and then there's just some stuff that's just necessarily graphic. So it was an amazing chat. One of the I think, I feel like personally, one of the best ones that I've had, at least in the moment, the way it felt uh, having it. I, I have a lot of connections to Betty for a lot of different reasons. And so it was hard for me at times. And I think you can hear it come through uh, late in the chat. There's a moment where the conversation obviously becomes labored and becomes hard to get through for, for a period for, for both of us um, pretty clearly in the audio. So that's what's coming up. And uh, the book, if you can't Quit crying! You can't come here no more. It's available today. It's been it's been available since September. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart.com. You know it's 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 all over the place. Also, you can go to BettyJaneFrizzell.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. But you can go directly to her website. I've also tweeted it out uh, already, and you can buy the book right there as well. It's uh, published by Feral House Publishing. They were very generous to set up the interview, and there's some other stuff with the interview that I don't I don't know how much of it I can talk about at this point. Uh, I did post a, a picture on some social media stuff. Uh, uh, you know, there's a camera in my face. There was a camera in Betty's face, and we'll just leave it at that. Uh, we'll leave it at that, and a little teaser for what could be coming down the road. So, all right, well, I will uh, go ahead and turn it over to the chat with Betty, and we'll see you on the other side. Let's have a chat. All right, welcome to Let's Have a Chat. This is a special installment with folks outside of the purely political realm. So for this episode, I am joined by perhaps one of the most interesting guests that we have had in our 16 months of shows, Betty Frizzle. Betty has an extensive background in criminal justice, including time as a uniformed officer and deputy, and as a police chief in Missouri, as a professor of criminal justice, classes for several years taught in the St. Louis area, continues to teach those classes, now up in Seattle, and has just released a new book about her firsthand experience with the inequities of the American justice system titled, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, which is available widely. I got my copy from Amazon, and there will be a link in the show notes to Betty's website itself where you can get your copy, which I cannot recommend enough. So, uh, we're going to chat about all of that. So first of all, Betty, welcome to the Heartland Pod. And how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be back in the show me state. <laughs> well, this is a particularly special episode because, uh, well, we're able to do this in person. And, uh, you know, most of these are conducted via Zoom. Now, you, you said back in the show me state, you no longer live in Missouri, but right. you are back. We are sitting here in a hotel in Chillicothe, Missouri. So let's start there. Why are we in Chillicothe? My sister is incarcerated in the Chillicothe Correctional Center for life plus 25 years. And that's your sister, Vicki? Yes. So tell, give us just sort of the, the short version of that. Why is Vicki here in Chillicothe? Um, she allegedly shot and killed her husband uh, of 13 years, and she is now serving life plus 25 years for second-degree murder. And that's the, the basis of this book, uh, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, is that story of essentially, you know, you, you give some background of the childhood, but the book really kind of takes off with that phone call when you learn that your sister is in prison. Um, I, I, can we go back to that moment for you and— you know, as a as a trained law enforcement officer, as a criminal justice expert, what was really going through your head at that point? I didn't understand why I hadn't been contacted. She had been in jail the whole day, and I hadn't received a phone call. Everybody knows that criminal justice is my life. Mm -hmm. That's all I've ever done my mm -hmm. whole adult life. And I wasn't contacted. I wasn't contacted by law enforcement. I wasn't contacted by my sister. I wasn't contacted by my nephew. 
I just didn't understand why I didn't know this. I had to f- find this out from my nephew who had been kept for several hours and uh, after the murder because he was present when it allegedly happened. So you mentioned being in law enforcement. I, I imagine um, that where this occurred, so, and it's probably worth stating, so mm-hmm. all of this happens basically in your hometown um, down in, in Puxico. Is that right? Yeah, my hometown's Popper Bluff, which okay. is 20 miles from there. But, yes, Puxico, Missouri is where it happened. Okay. And when when you had started your law enforcement career, you actually had worked some locally. Is that right? Yes, in Donovan and Ripley County Sheriff's Department. So from a connection standpoint, reasonable to suggest that there's somebody around who knows who your sister is, who you are, how to get a hold of you, that these people know that you, that you would be somebody to get a hold of. Well, for several months prior to this, I had had a lot of law enforcement contact with the one marshal that they had in Puxico. Mm-hmm. Puxico is a town of about 800 people, so everybody right. knows everyone, small towns. So, you know, that's one of the great things about living in a small town is, sure. is, is knowing that. And I'd had a lot of contact with the, the local marshal mm-hmm. because of the domestic violence that was going on and um i thought at least he would have called me yeah. or at least because he was the first on scene and that's something that i i know i don't know that folks are particularly uh familiar with or really understand what that world is actually like because you know, part of our our work we have some towns that we do the prosecution work for that have well like what you're talking about they've mm-hmm. got one officer maybe it's a part-time officer something like that and, you know, most of what they're doing is going door to door and going, hey, your grass is too long. Right. <laughs> you know? Cor- code enforcement. Right. It's time to move the car. It's time, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, but because of the size of the town, even a part-time officer in that scenario, like you say, is going to, they know. They know what's going on. It's not, there's no secrets in those kinds of towns. Right. And, you're, you know, with you being that connected to it, uh, I had to imagine that that was, and I was thinking about that as I was reading the book of just, how angry you had to be in that moment that your sister is sitting in jail. And not just, you know, I, I think folks have a misunderstanding of what it means to go to county jail right. in rural Missouri, but sitting in a county jail in rural Missouri and nobody's told you about it. I mean, it's just, it kind of blows my mind. Right. And that is one thing that I, I didn't understand because there were so many calls to the local uh, police officer, and I was trying to do an officer to officer courtesy, sure. like, hey, you know, I've I've been there. I understand this is a reoccurring domestic issue, right. but what can I do? Uh, you know, what can we do? What resources are available right. to help with this family? And basically, the only recourse I had was to get conservatorship of my sister, and that's an arduous task in any instance of someone who's married. Yeah, and that's, you know, folks, uh, I imagine there's a ton of folks who have learned everything they know about guardian and conservatorships in the last two or three months. Britney with Spears. With Britney Spears being yeah. out there in the public. Uh, of course, it's a little bit different here in Missouri. Um, and, it, and it is, you know, I, I do those kinds of proceedings for folks and, uh, from time to time. And it is not an easy thing to no. do. And it costs quite a bit of money yes, to get does. done. Uh, and you have to have a lawyer who's willing to do it. You have to have... A judge that you know is going to listen to what's going on and you also you know the, the part that I don't think people really understand is these are uh, heavy constitutional cases right. because you're talking about liberty interests you're talking about the right to vote the right to drive a car sometimes the right to own a gun and so mm-hmm. they have a right to a jury trial in right. fact in these cases exactly. so you have to serve them and they have to be present and all of these things have to be you know you can't just walk in and say this person needs help I'd like to help them right and I tried to get the help of my other siblings because uh, I'm we're the youngest. I'm the youngest of eight, mm. and Victoria is the um, seventh of the eighth children. Mm. I have eight children, so I tried to get help, but 
unfortunately, my sisters are all live in other southern states, and they believe that this was a household issue, not sure. our issue, that they could solve it themselves. But they didn't understand with the opioid uh, issue and the mental health issues that this was bigger than any of us. This was way out of everyone's wheelhouse. Yeah. So I, I and we're going to come back to those issues, too, because mm-hmm. those are huge. Um, a major player in your book, you, you already talked about my nephew, uh, your nephew, Kenny, uh, Vicky's son. And, you know, obviously I want folks to read the book, so I don't want to spoil okay. major uh, <laughs> details here. But uh, but simply put, uh, you make a pretty strong case that Kenny and not Vicky uh, killed Vicky's husband, Chris. And uh, has there been any movement since the book? It's been out for, what, about close to a month now. Yes. Has there been any kind of movement on that? No. And as you uh, know, in the state of Missouri, it's, it's hard once somebody's convicted right, right. <laughs> to get uh, any movement after the conviction. Yeah. So let's let's dig into you a little bit, okay. and then we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the rest of it. So uh, Betty Frizzle, uh, your career in law enforcement, when did that actually start? How did it progress? What led you uh, away from that world? Um, I started in 1997 in Donovan, Missouri. And, and where, where is Donovan? Donovan is right by Popper Bluff. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's by, it's by uh, West Plains. If okay, knows okay, West yeah, Plains yeah, yeah. Is. Uh, it's the next county before you get to West Plains. Sure, it's where you stop when you're going to go floating down there. Right, going to go floating <laughs> on Current River. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I um, started there, and then my husband was from Jennings, Ferguson area. So we moved um, closer to St. Louis to be by my mother and father-in-law. So I moved to Louisiana, Missouri, started up there, and then went into Lincoln County Sheriff's Department in Troy. And there I got an opportunity to work with the FBI. Mm. And uh, I, then I went to... Um, uh, be the sh- chief of uh, Linwood, and I, I, I'm sorry, of Winfield, yeah. and I got uh, injured on duty. Oh, That's okay. what ended me from doing uh, full-time law enforcement. Okay. Um, and uh, I went into the teaching part, those who can't do teach. Sure, so <laughs> sure. I went into teaching, and I love teaching, and I got the opportunity to teach in, at uh, Northwest Academy of Law in um, North St. Louis during the Ferguson unrest. Yeah, yeah. And But the Pacific Northwest has always been my heart, and I love, I've always been there. I lived there as a young adult, and uh, it was just time to move uh, back there because this case had taken so much out of me mentally. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I went back to the Pacific Northwest, and currently I uh, am an investigator there. Hmm. So... On your website, uh, which is bettyjanefrizzle.com, and I'll, that link will be in the show notes too. Okay. So th- this this appears. I'm going to read this and then ask you a question about it. So it says, escaped from her family's legacy of crime, addiction, and abuse to become a respected law enforcement officer and teacher, drawn back to the town and people of her past, Betty works to uncover the truth of murder and her family's history of violence. Her investigation uncovers sad realities about mental illness, small-town politics, and a society that doesn't care about, quote, poor white trash. There are never easy answers when the odds are stacked against you, and no amount of, quote, elegies will save your family. Now, I'm curious. (laughs) No amount of elegies. Yeah. Why that choice of words? Uh, because the hillbilly allergy that okay. came out. That was uh, my guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, he had a t- you know, he, his family actually worked. My family, mm-hmm. um, there was just so much mental health issues and uh, addiction. We were more of relied off of public assistance. Social Security was mm-hmm. our primary because my mom had 
five kids by um, I had eight kids by five different fathers. Mm. So I didn't know who my real father was till I was 36. Yeah. And Ancestry.com showed me who my father was. Sure. Victoria didn't still doesn't know who her father was, and she might die in prison because I can't do a DNA test to find out who her father is. Right. So um, I had a different take than that book uh, of of what life really was because. Even though he and I had similar life experiences, mm-hmm. it did we didn't have the same outtake as what he came to the conclusion at the end of his book. Sure, sure. It, it almost, uh, I, I'll, I guess I'll say it almost romanticizes something that really isn't very romantic. Yeah. So you, you talk about, uh, you've touched a little bit already on the, the opioid factor. How prevalent is that? Because we hear about it on the news, and I think a lot of folks who, you know, I think folks think about, I live in a rural area, I live in a small town, and uh, like, for example, where I live is about 22,000, 23,000 people or so. And it is small compared to, say, Kansas City, St. Louis, you know, something like that. But when we're talking about comparing it to a place like Puxico uh, and, and a lot of those towns around there, there's a ton of just itty bitty towns strewn about southeast Missouri and places like that. Um, how prevalent is this problem? Uh, it, it's obviously a huge problem. And um, even with Big Pharma now getting to uh, file bankruptcy on, on right. some stuff, it's still a big problem because I l- was kind of dumb to it, even being in law enforcement, because my sister would tell me, you know, I'm taking these pills. They were prescribed to her. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then she was like doctor shopping and other things like that because she couldn't um, – she couldn't regulate what she was doing. They were treating her mental illness with opioids, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. back in the late, you know, the two thousand, early two thousands, and the mid two thousands, when this crime occurred, was a natural. It was a common practice. They would go to these pain management places and get um, the opioids and and use those to manage something that should have been a psychotropic drug. Sure. So it is very prevalent. Uh, I can remember pulling people over even when, before I left law enforcement and buying people a lot of pills. Right. But, you know, back then we were looking more for pl- uh, bis- blister packs for meth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, that, uh, but, and when somebody's legally prescribed something, that's the issue. When you pull them over, they're legally supposed to have this with them. Right, right. Yeah, there's nothing you can do at that point in law enforcement unless they're driving under the influence. Right. Um, if other, if they're just carrying a bunch of prescribed pills, yes, even though it is one of the hardest drugs they can get their hands on, absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> another part of that that area that again I just don't think people really fully grasp. Um, I have you know you mentioned the whole it's a family issue, right? right? And we don't take care of it outside of that. That's something I have some familiarity with, and and you know you've got these areas. Where and you, you talk about it, especially with the the Isaacs, Chris's family uh, in the book, sort of these almost family compound right. kind of things going on. Right. Um, how much does that play a role? Do you think in, in what you know your story and, and your sister's story here? Um, you know, v- Vicky's story is probably not that unique. Right. Um, you know, it's important, and you've done a good job of lifting it up. But she is sort of almost run of the mill right uh for this how much do you think that it maybe plays a role well you got to think about where it happened at in a t- in a county that was about twenty one thousand people and he's also her alleged victim was also the youngest of eight children right so statistically if you look at it they're going to be related to somebody somewhere even if you do get a change of venue to the next county over right so 
judges are elected, prosecutors yeah. are elected, right. sheriffs are elected. Who elects them? The people in their county. Right. So you don't want to make anyone in the county upset by looking soft on crime. Sure. We all uh, and we all want safe communities. I fought my whole adult life to make communities safer, especially children and elderly. That was my main focus was crimes against persons. Right. However, there's other mitigating circumstances such as mental health issues and the amount of medicine that my sister was on at this time. It's a laundry list of medication because she had just had a stroke a year to the day prior to this murder. Hmm. And I imagine that that was something that you had probably noticed was changing a lot about her. Yes. And, you know, with the opioid use and uh, the mental health issues that were unregulated and, 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 um, and untreated. And then to uh, couple that with um, having the stress of having an additional mentally ill person that had mental health conditions, it was, uh, it was very taxing for her. I don't, and my nephew was very hard to take, even to me and my quote-unquote sane mind, and mm-hmm. especially having a stroke survivor who didn't have rehab. And cause she had no rehab after right. the stroke. Right. And then having uh, opioid use that the doctor's telling you that these are good for you. The doctor tells you that you right. should take this for right. this pain and that. And The doctor who, by the way, is probably being paid to say that. Right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So when we, we saw that, came, that's came out in the last few years. But Hey, folks, just a quick reminder here from Adam Summer. We are an independent set of podcasts over here at the Heartland Pod. Our complete feed is available to you for free, except for a couple of very small things. We have The Last Call, which is a more uncut version of our show, and we also have The Heartland News which is a blog that we uh, publish quite a bit of things on. And there's more over there as well. So check it out on our Patreon. Go to heartlandpod.com. You can click the button to subscribe there. If you already have a Patreon, you can go ahead and click right over from there. Uh, Every little bit helps us bring more content just like this with Betty Frizzell. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we want to bring you. Uh, So give us a hand, help us out. And without any more, I'll take it back to the interview. You know, you take someone that's not very, that doesn't have uh, an education, that's suffering, living with a mental health condition, and also taking opioids. Things aren't always clear to begin with with her before she had um, that, because she's always had a diminished intellect. Sure. So after the stroke, it was even more. And then plus the opioid use, and then living in a family where she was supposed to take care of everybody and she should have been rehab herself. Um, and I'm talking about rehab for the stroke, right? Not just the medical rehab. Yes. Yeah. And you paint the picture of, and again, this is one of those people think about, you know, class issues or, you know, what, what it means to be poor in America. And I can, I could feel the place that you were describing this trailer, this, this, what they called their home at the time, and the, the, the horror shock that you had when you walked into it and the way it was handled and the way the law enforcement had handled a, a crime scene right. uh, at the time. Um, when you think back, when you go back to that moment, when, when you get down there after Vicky's arrest and you get down and you see Kenny and you get to the trailer, how much do you find yourself, you know, has your perspective shifted on that moment at all or is that sort of one of those flashpoint memories that just can't go away 
it's it just can't go away i when i walked into that trailer i can still smell the smells i can still see the yeah. the blood soaked uh couch that they had this person with a 68 iq clean up right right i can still see the brain matter in the in in the um in the couch and i just i couldn't believe it i was taken aback i've been in some horrific crime scenes myself as a police officer and yeah. uh, and this was and not just from a personal level but from anyone's standpoint this was just horrific of why they they left this this issue this here and they allowed so many people to walk in the crime scene because you know he's the youngest of eight and take things from the crime scene which the low card principle is you can't leave a crime scene without depositing something you can't take something out without taking something with you right so if there and i would have as a police officer i'm always thinking about appeals what what are they going to get us on appeals you know what are they going to think about tricky damn lawyers yeah i know You know that there's so many lawyer jokes that are going through my head right now, yeah, Adam. I got okay. it. I've I got them all. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but um, I was just thinking about, you know, um, how how did we get to this point? This is not. I mean, I've I've worked for some small cities. I've yeah. worked for some small counties, but I've never seen this kind of you know, unprofessionalism that I've yeah. seen. And and then later on. Um, I talk about in the book how they took my sister to the ATM to get her last social security check off. Yeah. Which my sister was on a no bond warrant, right. by the way, because uh, she was a danger. Due to, to her, her danger. Yes. She right. was a danger to right. herself and others. And there had been threats from his family um, about that they were. So that put the officers in, injury, in, right. in, in harm's way. I thought about it from my officer standpoint. I wouldn't have put my officers in, in, a, in that kind of a. a um, line of fire right just to go right. get a social security check that they put on her account which they made money off of that that was a really fascinating part to me and I, and I think it's one of those things that if you're in the world of criminal justice if you're in and around this stuff uh, you know I, I almost had to put it down when I read that part because right. I was just like they did what right like she's on a <laughs> she's on a you're so dangerous we're not gonna let you out no matter what kind of bond. And they took her to an ATM and let her use an ATM. They let her have her hands free enough to use an ATM. They let right. her do this thing. That is mind-boggling. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling. We, for a year, even before COVID, most of the court appearances now are by video, specifically right. to avoid the transport issues and the mm-hmm. safety issues that come about with that. And and we've got this happening with somebody that they're alleging has just committed this heinous this you know heinous crime. And and in the meantime, you, you know, while you're detailing that, you're detailing what is, uh, kindly put, a, a, a dereliction of of duty by the investigators that were involved in this. Ca- and investigators probably not even the right word, frankly, based on what you describe of, of how it was conducted. Um. So, I, I just I just don't understand. I guess how how does this happen? I mean, what is your perspective on how that really, that part of it? It comes down to, it's, a lot of people want to say it's a training issue. And it does. The It's who you elect. You have an elected sheriff that is allowing these people to walk through a crime scene and take mm-hmm. things in and out. And not using basic criminology concepts as the low card principle that I already just described right, right. to you. Um and allowing, um, there's nobody there. And, you know, in the rural areas, there's not a lot of jobs sometimes. Sometimes sure. the yeah. factories lay off and things. There wasn't somebody that they could have that could clean up a crime scene with blood and biohazard. Right. 
I, I surely someone would have made some money. I well, mean, nothing else. The major case squad. Like where was the major case squad? They were activated. They supposedly a, a, a task force was activated, and there was some members from the Missouri State Highway Patrol. But um, like I didn't understand the first investigator that inve- that spoke with my nephew didn't have a recorder. Right. Yeah, that blew my mind. A too. ten dollar recorder. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe that. I had I had such a shoestring budget in my police department. I, but I had recorders right, for right. officer uh, safety and for the public safety. Right. And I just didn't understand. W- it was a comedy of errors just because they had a confession that this lady, you know, supposedly killed her husband. And mm-hmm. granted, at this time, there was an active Div- Missouri Division of Aging case going on mm-hmm. in which I reread the report last night that said she reports that there's nothing going on. But. She was interviewed by her husband and her son, right. the two people that were abusing her. Right, right. And uh, so I, um, I, I just didn't understand. I, you know, I worked in small areas. I know the lack of resources. But however, there, uh, when I tried to ask them why did this not happen, I was shut down. You know, it was like, yeah. go back to St. Louis. Don't worry about what's going on down here. I'm from here. <laughs> right. This is. I'm not like some outsider. I felt very ostracized. And to be clear, this was the year 2013. Mm -hmm. This was not 1988. Right. Right. This is modern. This is is within the last decade that we're talking about here. But the mentality that you're describing is like a, you know, it's like a movie from 1975. Right. Where it's, you know, the sheriff's just like, you don't look like you're from here. Right. (laughs) It's like that kind of mentality. And I kept hearing, you know, the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's sure. the song that I kept hearing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm living it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Quick update. All right, I've got Rachel Parker with me because, uh, as you guys know, we have launched our Patreon page, and there's going to be a new feature on there. It's going to be called the Heartland News. It's going to be a member service. So this was uh, Rachel's idea. So, Rachel, tell us about it. What is it going to be? What can they expect? First of all... I wouldn't exactly take all the credit. We've been talking for a while about what we can do to provide, I don't know, just sort of better journalism, I guess, for people in this region. I think people deserve curation to have someone sort of sitting in front of a lot of information and helping them pick through it in a way that spares them the time and energy that people like you and I would already spend looking at the stuff because we're obsessed and we're nerds. Yeah. And also, obviously, I'm a writer. So you take all those things and you put it together and it was only going to be a matter of time before we sort of decided that we were going to become a little bit more serious about doing original content online. A lot of people know that I used to blog kind of under my own banner. You know, I don't think it's any big surprise to anybody to hear that that is lonely business. Um, It's very difficult to promote yourself as a writer, particularly because you know these big tech platforms don't really prioritize links anymore. So it's very difficult to promote yourself. And yeah. When I first kind of signed on with the podcast, we had always intended to put my effort probably behind more of our masthead, so to speak, yeah. because it's it's more fun to collaborate with other people, first of all, and you get better ideas. So yeah, so we're going to launch a newsletter very soon, um, soon? Uh, before the end of the month. <laughs> what can they? What kind of stuff can they expect in it? I know so, you're working on something. Expect that we're going to basically take kind of like what we do with the Heartland Pod every week. We're going to look at, you know, we're going to basically curate uh, stories from news feeds, from other news sources. 
Um, it may mean that some of you might have to subscribe to some newspapers and to some other independent journalistic sources because we firmly believe that journalism is important. And then, of course, I will opine on things in between. Probably there'll be a little bit of editorializing in the yeah. newsletter itself where I'll be my usual pithy self. Yeah. But the idea will be to sort of help elevate figures, stories, and situations that affect us here in the old battered heartland and how national stories reflect back in this area too i think yeah i'll I'll try to always include like this is a cool thing i thought this was awesome this will make you feel better this is a cool story about you know a new panel that's going to sit on the side of the building of a building and capture wind energy you know things that are also beyond just sort of like we live in monoparty <laughs> states and it sucks, right? Look right. at this idiot from Indiana. Like there's going to be a lot of that, but there's also going to be a lot of like great little juicy tidbits and culture and art. And, and the opposite inspiring. of it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, and we, we really do appreciate that people consider subscribing because we want to do the opposite. Like you just said, like we want to do the opposite of clickbait. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't do anybody any good. I, I. We've talked about this on the pod some that lately when we've been like, for example, the infrastructure package is the perfect place to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Afghanistan is another uh, example. That what happens is that maybe inside the story there's there's decent reporting and good analysis and even. Um, balanced framing of an issue, but the headline carries the day. This has always been how the media works, by the way. I'd say it's gotten way, way, way worse, but the media has always been good at like waxing a nutcase headline around a story that was probably pretty okay. And I feel that that's definitely happened with the infrastructure package. And so first of all, that would be something that we could talk more about in like a newsletter format that we don't necessarily have time to do on the podcast. And also, like, I don't really want to freak people out with the headline that, you know, as much as I have a website called I Made You Look, I'm probably going to use that more for different types of projects now. The idea was really kind of what led us to, led me to join the Heartland Pod. So I can be a little bit less alarmist and sort of less provocational. And I can be more sort of, we can be more detailed. And it'll give, you know, you're a writer. It'll give other people a chance also to um, to kind of talk about other issues and things that are near and dear to our hearts. So I think it's going to be great. Uh, And folks should subscribe to the Patreon so they can get immediate access to all of it. Um, And I think it's just going to get bigger and bigger as we kind of find our groove with that from a content standpoint. And it's going to make it easier to bring other voices in because it's easy to, for sure. Know, I'm sure we'll have folks That's that we can correct. talk to and, and bring and my, them on board. My, and my dream is that we would also be able to collaborate with some of the other resources that are right. in the region because there are a lot of really good writers. And um, while I would argue that a lot of a lot of states that have that are quite rural just don't have the same concentration of resources, obviously, that other places do. And mm-hmm. in the meantime, with all of the brain drain that's gone to the coast, because that's where young people go, um, this region, I think, is utterly bereft of uh, consistent, good, independent media sources. Well, here we I are. I think there's exceptions. Yeah, I think like the Missouri <laughs> Independent is a great job, but we're right, right. we're really trying to do we're trying to help create some sort of infrastructure. Yeah, because a, real, a real media Missouri, ecosystem. Right. Like we have the best journalism school in the country in Missouri. If I was a Mizzou journalism student and if I wanted to be a professional writer, I would definitely get the hell out of the state. And that also just means that there's also less, not as only is there less opportunity, there's just less uh, conversation uh, that is contextualized and, you know, balanced and interesting. So that's the goal. Well, we will bring it. That's the goal. Folks, sign up and we'll bring that to you. Rachel, thank you very much. And let's get it back to uh, the chat.
So as much as your book is, you know, it, the the thrust of your book is your sister's case and mm-hmm. the, the world that's swirling around it. It also is, you know, like we're talking about those failures of accountability in law enforcement and, and kind of helping us understand, you know, it, like you said, at the time this is occurring, you're teaching in Ferguson, right, right. where all of this is occurring on national news. We're watching this. And, and to folks outside of that area, it feels like, because, you know, if all you're getting is what's on the news, it feels like this is a very urban issue, this policing right. issue, this failure of criminal justice issue, however you want to couch it. But it feels to me like your book does a good job of sort of building a bridge between the fact that this is not an urban issue right. or a rural issue. This is a class issue. Yes. And that it, it affects folks uh, from class on, you know, lower class and up, and that there's a line where it stops. Right. And that money is a big part of it. Yes. You know, and that's one thing that we, we found with the reforms in the uh, bond issue, the bell bonds issue. You know, right. a lot of people have uh, worked on that because I would be teaching in, in North St. Louis all day long, and mm-hmm. I've had these 17 year olds that were, um, that were, experiencing high high felonies right. <laughs> very serious felonies right. uh, and didn't understand their rights didn't understand due process because going to jail was just part of what they thought they should do it was right. like a rite of passage right but then i at night i'm dealing with my sister's case and dealing with okay do you need an investigator missouri public defender because this is your fifth <laughs> public defender you had and there are great missouri public defenders out there i i, I have worked with them and they have been great i've testified for the public defender's office when i've been a police officer in some cases because you know sometimes people get charged with domestic violence when they're actually the victim right and um so i i had this juxtaposition of you know i've got middle of st louis and then i've got this rural county and Nobody's listening to nobody. Yeah. It's everybody wants to be the king of their own kingdom. Right. Right. The the domestic violence factor of this is it it almost gets overshadowed by how outrageous some of what's going on is. Mm-hmm. But you know, you talk about your sister is being interviewed by her abusers and that's basically how the state is deciding if that things are kind of fine there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um how how much in your career uh, is that something that you saw firsthand? Because that's sort of, you know, why I wound up in law school, why I wound up doing this stuff for a living is because I, from sort of that, that, that world. Um, so how, how much, yeah, <laughs> how much of that? Uh, and, I, you know, I've always been counting myself very lucky. I was never myself. I was a boy. So, right. you know, I didn't get hit. Right. But everybody else did. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, and, and it, it didn't stop until somebody finally listened to what was really going on. I mean, there's a story of uh, my my dad in court um, explaining why he knew what was going on inside of our house because he could see through the window. And when he was asked how he could see through the window that was hundreds of yards away from the end of the road, he said because he was looking through his scope. And when they said, where was your scope? He said it was on my deer rifle. Right. He didn't think anything about that. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, we're talking about, tw- you know, 25 years ago. Um, but that hasn't changed a whole lot. No, it hasn't. Um, we, they still think, and just like in my own family, you know, we went through a traumatic um, childhood. Yeah. But it was Tuesday for us. Sure. You know, we were always exposed to guns. I had a gun before I had a Barbie doll. Right. So 
that was that was nothing and i have had my grandfather was involved in murders my grandmother even my own mother mm-hmm. and and then i have another sister that had was accused but never convicted so and then my uncles <laughs> it goes on and on and right, on right and uh, a lot of them are with their intimate partners or someone from the intimate family so we knew violence was just a part of it and sure. it was so you like um it was really funny the other day vicky i just recently got remarried and vicky said um your husband's a nice man and i said yes he is and she <laughs> said uh your ex-husband was a nice man. I said, yes, he was, and he still is. He is great. And she said, um, you always get nice men. And I said, well, yeah, I think I do. And she said, I've never been with a nice man. Yeah, yeah. And that was heartbreaking for me because I right. didn't, because we were so ingrained that Vicky was the literal whipping boy right. in our family. She was the one that took, you know got in all the trouble at school. She was the one that didn't do good in school. Right. She was the one that got hit the most. That I didn't see her as a victim. I saw her as a person who made bad choices. And I think that's what we get into. Right. Right, those labels get attached. Right, and then you know, you know, and you're got so many kids, you know, your mom assigns these labels to you, especially someone who is in, uh, an abusive person that wants to keep right. you in those roles. Right. So I was labeled a smart one, and I always had to do good. And if I didn't do good in school, I was thought I was going to get in trouble, and I knew I was going to get in trouble. And then Vicky was considered the dumb one, which that's what you know. My mom would always do that, put that label on her, and I think she started buying into that right. at a very early age. Sure, self fulfilling, totally. Right. And I imagine, you know, you describe it in the book, too. And I'm guessing there's a ton more than what you recall for the book's purpose where Vicky steps in. Yes. And she makes sure that you don't get it. Right. That you aren't the the end of the stick. She was my protector. Yeah. Because, and, you know, at one point, she, my mom particularly had a a gruesome, uh, and I don't want to trigger anyone, but it was an awful attack on me when I was a little bit older and uh, because I didn't put my bicycle upright and Vicky stepped in at that time and I remember I kept asking Vicky please don't do that I don't want to see you get hurt and she says I have to yeah you're going to get you somewhere I'm not going to be anything yeah I'll be nothing yeah do you ever think about your story and your success and your ability to find a path out of Poplar Bluff and and that area do you ever think of it with that survivor's guilt? Does yes. that ever hit you? Yes, it does all the time. I every success I've had in my life is because of Vicky. Yeah, and that's why. And it didn't hit me till later on when she was sentenced to life plus twenty five years after a plea deal. By the way, yeah, <laughs> that I understood how much that um, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Vicky. Yeah. And her sacrifices of her own bodily sacrifices of taking that beating all the time. Not just me, but my older sisters. She took the fight for them, too. Because she knew that mom would love to... She was the punching bag. She was the literal whooping boy. Yeah. Have you had moments along with that where you find yourself and... uh, And I I don't... I know this is not fun or easy to talk about, but this is, as I'm reading the book, this is what I'm thinking about, okay? And and the reason is because the more and more I read the book, the more and more I go, my God, I have a lot in common with this woman. <laughs> um, and do you ever find yourself casting blame on you yes. for where Vicky is right now? It, uh, absolutely. It destroyed my 26-year marriage. Uh, at the end of this, you know, I, I, I came out on the other side and I try to hold out hope, but I absolutely have that guilt that, especially me, I, it's so ingrained in me to protect and serve. 
I'm, I'm right. that police officer you want on the street <laughs> right. because right. I I've I've been there. I, I want to help those people. You know, I want to be the one that you want to show up in that patrol car because I'm going to do my best to make sure everybody's safe. Yeah. And, and, and but Vic, but I couldn't save Vicky. And my mom had made me promise to take care of her because yeah. of her uh, diminished intellect that I feel like I didn't fulfill my mom's promise because my mom, the day before she died, um, she pulled me aside and said, please take care of Kenny and Vicky, and I've taken care of neither one. But mm. I, I, and I had to s- learn to take care, self-care, because yeah. if I'm not taking care of myself, I can't take care of anyone else. Got to put your oxygen mask on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, shift gears a little bit. Okay. <laughs> sure. uh, as I read the book, so I, I felt like in a way that as I was reading, and it's not it's not a terribly long book, and right. it's, it's a very quick uh, read. Um, by the way, you write like a police officer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's good <laughs> or not. <laughs> you're like a very good police officer. I read a lot of police reports, and uh, about 10 pages in, I was like, this is like a really, really good police report. <laughs> Great narrative, a lot of details and facts. Um, reiterating important pieces. Um, but, but I felt like in a way that as you were writing the book, that you you had to have written it fairly linear in chapters because I could feel how sad you were when you started writing the book. And I could feel at the end of the book that while, you know, happy is probably a fake term and it's probably an unfair term to use uh, in these instances, but I could feel like the weight had shifted, like it had at least been displaced in a way that you were able to stand up straight again and take a deep breath again and see the sun and think about how good it felt uh, without always having to think in negative terms. It was that, did the book help that process? It was very cathartic to write this book. I, um, and and, you know, I, I, I've realized myself that I didn't come out of that house without getting some burns because you can't go through hell without getting burns, sure. right? Yeah. So I had to realize myself that I was a little bit damaged in ways. Yeah. And then, you know, go, being drugged back there because I had made this comfortable life in Winsville, Missouri. Yeah. I, you know, I taught in Ferguson, but I came back home every night to my nice, comfortable home in Winsville. A nice town. It is. Beautiful town. And Winsville's a great town. And Lake St. Louis, I love both of them. They were my home for a long That's time. That's my old stomping grounds, yeah. Yeah, great area. <laughs> and I, you know, I could kind of defuse and, you know, sure. okay, next day I'll get up back on the horse and I'll help the, help my students or help them understand. And from my classes, I, I just want to give a little caveat. I have had a lot of, of them go in the criminal justice system, uh, a lot of my um, minority students and especially my minority female students go into criminal justice that's good. i'm very proud of that's good uh that's good for the system yeah they bring a different perspective yeah just like me coming from my background i believe i brought a different perspective to law enforcement sure. because of what i'd been through and um but as i'm as i'm i'm understanding that you know this wasn't just a vicky problem this was a a systematic problem and a family problem that we needed to deal with and now that we're more open about mental health conditions uh, you know when i call her on the phone at the at the prison i say listen how's your mental health that's the first question and i yeah. if she's had if something's triggered her and i say call me before you get in trouble with the guards because they get to go home at night i want right. you to come home eventually right. so i um i just being more open and honest because we're real Missouri girls, we don't talk about our emotions. My right. mom wouldn't let us cry. That's why the book, it was when the first time I saw her, we never cry. Right. And when I saw her, I couldn't stop crying. 
and that's why I got. And she couldn't help herself. It was almost like a reflex for her to say, "You can't, you can't cry, you can't keep crying in here." No, you because she couldn't take it. That's why probably one of the reasons why she would take the beatings for me because as soon as she heard me cry, she was in there. You know, she was almost reflexive that she was there saving me. Yeah. So, and one of the things, and I don't want to give too much away about uh, where the story goes, but. I imagine that uh, part of what makes the book feel so light is is how proud you had to have been with the way you conducted yourself while you were in Europe and the way that <laughs> the yeah. work that you did uh, finding uh, finding Kenny and mm-hmm. folks. You know, I, I I will call that a teaser, and yes. the the <laughs> how how we get there is is really really fun. Uh, well, fun to read. I don't yeah. know that it was that much fun to do, but um, how, you know, how much uh, pride were you able to have in that? How much has that helped your teaching? It's helped me a lot. I, um, I, you know, I can bring a, a different perspective to the classroom. It's a different type of student in in Washington than here. You know, I was sure. primarily an African American uh, community here, and right. then I go out there and I've got Asian and uh, so many different. Dis- I, th- I think we had seventeen different uh, nationalities at the school I was teaching at. Wow. So, um, and it's very interesting because you see that everybody has p- the same problems. It's a universal problem. Mm-hmm. It's a human problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one thing I wish that people would understand. It's not just being, it's not trying to be progressive or, or woke or anything like right, that. Right, right. This is a human problem. Right. We, and it's a class issue and a money issue. Yeah. Because money gets these people elected. Money keeps these people in the positions that they have, they have over power. And some people, in, like when I told my mom I wanted to be a police officer, she was like, what do you want to do that for? That's for other people. Right. Other, other people, people. Yeah. even though I was yeah. considered the smart one, that's other people should sure. do that. Uh, but I, I knew I would do good at it because I, kn- I knew the perspective I wanted to bring. So obviously, part of what I'm sure your hope for this book is is that it helps uh, Vicky, it helps with her story, and it helps mm-hmm. her find true justice one day. What else do you think that this book can do? What else do you hope for this book? I hope that that rural law enforcement reads it because I am very prideful to be a, a, a police officer and rural communities understand that because I um, have been involved with the rural criminal justice system, uh, of, um, summit d- with Decent Law School in, in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of their first speakers for their first conference that they had back in 2018. So I want to see... Let's start thinking about these things in the rural counties. It's not just Ferguson. It's not just right. St. Louis. It's not just Kansas City. Because the when I did my first speak with them, I found out from the Vera Institute, who is not associated with anything in, in Missouri or not affiliated with it, they had done a study, and most of the people that were coming to DOC, Missouri DOC, were from these smaller counties. Right. Right. So let's talk about it. I want my book to be a, an eye-opener. Let's talk about the training issue. Let's talk about the election issue. Let's talk about how... Um, how people get a fair trial in the rural counties. How do folks find you? How do they find the book? Um, they can go to Betty Jane Frizzell. Frizzell. <laughs> I've been saying Frizzle and I feel like a fool. I should have asked you. <laughs> it's Frizzell. It's kind of my thing, though. I just get names wrong. Yeah, it's so. like, uh, it's like uh, the country singer. <laughs> uh, but uh, Frizzell, and uh, that's okay. Uh, I've been called lots of things. I've been a police officer a long time. I've been cussed out in just about every language you can be cussed yeah. out in. So um, uh, in uh, BettyJaneFrizzell.com or go to Feral House. I also have Facebook uh, author Betty Frizzell page um i'd love to hear from people who've read the book and uh, to tell me how maybe what they thought about it or how it's touched them because i've been contacted by so many people not just in from missouri but 
all over the United States and even England that mm-hmm. have written me and said, this is my story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's certainly, yeah, it, it, it moved me the same way. And, and I think folks, you know, even if they're not from it, even if they haven't experienced uh, anything similar, I think they need to see it. I think they need to read it. And I think they need to feel it because it's, like you say, it's it's a perspective that we need to see. Uh, right. And folks need to understand that this is this is a class issue, and in rural urban doesn't matter. It's right. it's it's about class, and we need to have more of that. Well, the book is "If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More." Betty Frizzell, thank you very <laughs> much for your time. You've been very generous. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you. And send our all of our love to Victor. Oh, thank you. I will.